I hate war as only a soldier who has lived it can, only as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, its stupidity. Dwight D. Eisenhower. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. The Radio Hour is a project of Veterans for Peace Chapter 168, Louisville, Kentucky, broadcast on Forward Radio, WFMP-LP, Louisville 106.5 FM. This program is also available on the Forward Radio website in streaming and podcast form at forwardradio.org. That's all lowercase and no spaces. Veterans for Peace is an international organization dedicated to building a culture of peace. We are military veterans, family members, and allies. We accept veteran members from all branches and all eras of service. Veterans for Peace has been exposing the true costs of war since 1985. As veterans, we work to heal the world and ourselves through our commitment to peace. That may seem like a tall order, maybe impossible, even ludicrous. But we must keep in mind that every journey begins with the first step. Please join us on our journey. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. My name is Peter Barris, and I'm your host for this month, July, our 37th program. We are broadcasting from beautiful downtown Louisville from the historic Hayburn Building. The following opinions expressed reflect my own and not necessarily those of Veterans for Peace or WFMP Radio. Since this is our July program, I've chosen to focus on some very basic American identities and emotions, both personal and national, and mainly around various meanings and perceptions of patriotism itself, and the main symbols of patriotism, the American flag and our national anthem. And so I've titled this program, Patriotism, What Is It? What Is It Not? And I've subtitled the program, Strolling Through a Minefield of Competing Definitions and Emotions. It's been several weeks since our 4th of July national celebration and the various displays and demonstrations of what patriotism looks like, the flag and the anthem acting as centerpieces for the celebrations. For many of us, our flag, our national anthem, and patriotism are synonymous, one equivalent to or even wrapped up together into one while others of us consider each of these differently. For some, they are mere symbols of our principles, real or imagined, while others see see them as socially constructed and even manipulated images to evoke emotions while hiding the reality that our actions are discouragingly distant from these symbols. In short, there is a huge difference in what we say about ourselves as a nation and how we actually act. Those differences between symbol and reality are especially playing out in today's political environment of intense polarization. To the point where our flag, anthem, and definitions of what patriotism means have largely become weaponized and used as a focal point for hate and divisive political battles. 
That tangible piece of cloth, our flag, as all national flags, represents or is thought to represent our country's values, beliefs, and principles, an association most often accepted without question. What the flag represents may be very different for different people. Though usually ingrained during childhood, these views can very well be changed by an individual given the right experiences or knowledge. From my age of awareness in the mid-50s until today, speaking with you, our flag and anthem have both involved and invoked a range of feelings, thoughts, and reactions. In my youth, I held utter reverence toward our flag. I was confident the flag embodied in its very material our best value. I was definitely committed to dying for it, should that ever be necessary, to protect our country and our incredible experiment in democracy. In my early teen years, I began to feel my first sense of disgust, mainly because of the commercial manipulations of the flag to sell products. Initially, this involved cars and typically with a flag bikinied woman standing proximate to or even sprawled across a car hood. In my late teens during high school and amid the chaos of civil rights battles and the battles in Vietnam, I began to wrestle with some conflicting emotions about using the flag as a political statement. Initially, I recoiled at its use as a symbol of what was wrong with America, but I was also torn between my absolute support of freedom of speech and feeling an emotional assault caused by what I felt at the time was the unacceptable mistreatment of the flag as political speech. Later in early adulthood, during and after serving in Vietnam, I came to absolutely support the use of the flag as a symbol of resistance and criticism of American policies and realities, and as legitimate free speech. Distinguishing between the flag itself and the principles which it supposedly represented, I came to believe we were not practicing those principles domestically or internationally. Now in my later years, I'm feeling my deepest concern yet with its use as a divisive symbol, as a way to say, I am and you are not a true patriot, and most recently culminating in the most disturbing misuse of our flag in my lifetime as a weapon against our democratic institutions, our elected representatives, and those protecting our capital on January 6th of this year a very long way from the flag as I was raised to think of it. Born after World War II, <clears throat> the, the afterglow of our victory against the evil ideology of fascism brought us not only victory, but a sense of decency, righteousness, and a particular reverence for the flag as symbolizing political loyalty and pride. As a baby boomer growing up on military bases, I took prideful delight in stopping every evening when, seven days a week, at the first sounds of taps, I would face the direction of the bugle and the headquarters flag, even if I could not see it. I'd place my hand over my heart and listen to taps 
as the flag was lowered and retrieved for the night, to be raised at revelries early the next day, awakening soldiers at dawn. This was custom on military bases, and I obliged, willingly, even as others hustled to get inside in order to avoid the ritual. Beginning in the early to mid-1960s, anti-war activists began to use the flag in a new way for political criticism of the Vietnam War, society in general, as well as conditions in this country which were far from the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, quote-unquote disrespecting the flag became a strong statement of discontent and resistance to political policies and military action in Vietnam, which of course enraged many Americans, including myself, and marked the beginning of this ongoing debate until this day, whether this cloth was embedded with our principles or merely symbolic of those principles. It is within that time frame when my personal journey of patriotism and my view of the role of the flag underwent profound transformation. In this hour, I'll discuss all of this with the hope of providing alternative perspectives for your consideration by understanding where our flag and anthem stand in our belief systems today and to move toward the depoliticization and the de-weaponizing of the flag. At this point in our history, we must go beyond fighting over mere symbols in our politics, given the ugliness of the current situation and the contentious debates over proper treatment of the flag and the anthem, and we need to move toward a more conscious, reasoned, and a knowledge-based notion of patriotism. But first, this reminder, you are listening to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour on 106.5 WFMP Forward Radio, Louisville, Kentucky. Now, in order to make this hour more manageable, I'll be presenting this program in four parts. In part one, we'll focus on some very basic definitions. Since there are so many competing, even mutually exclusive notions of what patriotism is, it's important to clarify and distinguish some of the basic terms used in our cultural attitudes and discussions about our own country and about the rest of the world. Part two will include my personal story of why and how my notion of patriotism underwent fundamental change from the idealized myths of my youth to a critical view of how patriotism has been used to ignore the realities of what has transpired in our country since its inception and to hide those realities lived by many domestically and internationally, which have nothing to do with liberty or freedom or happiness, or for that matter, justice or equality or opportunity or national security. In part three, I'll attempt some clarification of patriotism from a historic perspective by looking toward an understanding of what patriotism is and, much more importantly, what patriotism is not. And in part four, we'll wrap this up by pointing toward what we, each of us, might do personally and then collectively and how and where we might go with a more informed and principle-based notion of patriotism. Part 1. With so many different and competing terms to describe our feelings and attitudes toward our country, it's best to begin today's program 
with some basic definitions of pay and address some of the confusion by defining other related terms such as nationalism, chauvinism, jingoism, and flag-waving. But first, patriotism. As typically defined in most dictionaries, patriotism or national pride is the feeling of love, devotion, and sense of attachment to a homeland or a country, and a sense of alliance with other citizens who share the same sentiment to create a feeling of oneness among the people. This definition is the model definition taught in our education and cultural systems. It speaks to love and attachment to a homeland. That is what binds us in a positive way, the shared experience, gratitude, and love for the country we share. This was my own feeling as I grew up. But there are other related terms which are too often seen as the same thing as patriotism, but are indeed different. One of those terms is nationalism. Nationalism is typically defined as an ideology based on the premise or the assumption that the individual's loyalty and devotion to the nation state surpass other individual or group interests. This definition suggests that we overlook our other distinctions such as ethnicity, race, gender, religion, and even political views to identify as Americans. This is the long-held idea of the melting pot, where all, especially newcomers, shed their previous loyalties, even their personal identities, to become American. Though that may have been the norm for some of our history, in the last many decades, many Americans have sought to reestablish their identities with their past and with their personal characteristics of gender, race, personal beliefs, and so on which for many appears as a threat to patriotism itself and so is perceived as dangerous. But this surpassing of individual or group interests can be good or bad for the individual and the nation. National identity is of great value in many ways, but an over-identification with one's own nation and support for its interests, especially to the exclusion or the detriment of the interest of some of our own population, and the interest of other nations. That has been the root of many wars and a strong motivation to subdue and dominate other countries. This is an example of an extreme form of nationalism, uh, which I have found during 45 years of teaching about government and foreign relations to be little recognized nor understood by most students, even politically sophisticated ones. This term I'll introduce next is a little appreciated term representing the extreme opposite of the good aspects of nationalism. As it seems, we don't utilize words which differentiate patriotism in the above positive way and a patriotism gone wrong. Absent a word for that extreme and selfish vision leaves us unable to distinguish between different versions or degrees of patriotism. But we do have a term which allows this distinction, and that term is jingoism, J-I-N-G-O-I-S-M. Jingoism is defined as an attitude of belligerent nationalism or a blind adherence to the rightness or virtue of one's own nation simply because it's one's own nation. Opposite of patriotism, and increasingly to, an, to a dangerous degree, 
It is essentially jingoism, which denies our collective responsibility to the whole world and often leads to feelings of anti-internationalism or in the common parlance of the day as America first. And as it's been used by so many, America first means America only. Jingoism is often present in chants of USA, 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 when, the scre- when screamed in an aggressive fashion as a threat to other countries and their legitimate interests, or as a call for disengagement from international affairs. This was, I believe, the basic impulse of the Trump administration as it unilaterally pulled back or out of many international agreements and alliances which have allowed historically for American leadership in the world while addressing some of the many international problems which threaten all countries. America first and only shows an ignorance of the reality of the world's problems, the interdependency of the world, and the collective effort needed to confront the devastation of global problems like poverty, viruses, and climate change. The contentious battles over the flag and the anthem are, at their core, misunderstandings or disagreements about whether these are mere symbols of national principles or are, in fact, those principles themselves. So that a rejection of or a perceived misuse of either the flag or the anthem is tantamount to rejecting the values and principles upon which our country was built. Another term worthy of some consideration is symbolism. Symbolism is defined as a mark, a sign, or a word that indicates or signifies or is understood as representing an idea, an object, or a relationship. As symbols, the question whether they represent the actual ideals, object, or relationship themselves, even as we as a country fail to act, behave, or live by those principles. Symbols allow people to go beyond what they know or see by creating linkages between otherwise very different concepts and experiences, thereby safely protecting one's own belief, even in the face of disconfirming evidence, is made possible by infusing a symbol with one's own meaning and so ignoring realities which challenge your long-held beliefs. You know, a practical way of talking about this is in the notion of symbolic politics which is a long-used device to both promote nationalism and pride in country and to blur or hide the distance between what we say and what we practice. This difference, our flag and anthem as symbol or as embodied principles, creates a large gap between different people who view them as one or the other. In addition to patriotism, nationalism, and jingoism, there are a few other important terms to define which also relate to these debates. One of those is chauvinism. Chauvinism is a familiar term to most of us, which is typically used to refer to a person's attitude of superiority toward others. At the national level, national chauvinism refers to an exaggerated or an aggressive patriotism, much like its common use associated with male attitudes of superiority toward women. And finally, flag-waving. Flag-waving, which is another important notion and usually refers to the expression of patriotism in a populist and emotional way, as in wrap oneself in the flag. Or flag-waving as an excessive show of one's patriotism, especially for political ends. One example over the last years 
uh, a flag lapel pin has become has come to supposedly reflect who is patriotic and who is not. This is true on the streets and particularly among our elected representatives, where not wearing a flag pin has been reason to question another person's patriotism. A more recent and more disgusting example is Trump's ridiculous hugging of the flag prior to one of his speeches. Grinning like he was the consummate patriot, embracing the flag, wrapping himself in the flag, he, who used his privilege to avoid serving that flag during his youth, when poor kids filled the armed ranks and were sent to fight, while privileged kids were handed a variety of deferments, some valid and legitimate, many fabricated, and some, as in the case of Trump, outright purchased. This situation, the battle over the flag and its meaning has played out with lapel pins and the attempt to control what the flag means to the extent of determining who owns the flag. This is particularly true of the right wing who claim that they alone respect and essentially own the flag, reflecting the ridiculous level to which our political discourse has fallen, where symbols speak louder than words, where blind loyalty substitutes for informed knowledge of our own history and of today's realities. Much of this emotional attachment to the cloth flag was addressed in a song I found helpful in my thinking about what the flag represented and why. A song, in fact, which expresses in simple terms the mis misuse of our flag to divide and separate people. A classic song by the late, great, renowned singer and songwriter and veteran John Prine, who incidentally died of COVID complications last year. Let's listen in. Before we begin part two, a reminder, you're listening to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour on WFMP Forward Radio 106.5 FM, Louisville, Kentucky. Part two. The 4th of July, Patriotism, War, and Patriotism Reconsidered. I am an Army brat, born at Fort Benning, Georgia in 1949. By the time I graduated from high school, I had been raised on 10 military bases in three different countries and five separate states. That is, I was raised in the most patriotic communities imaginable. On the 4th of July each year, military bases reflect the epitome of patriotism. Starting the morning with a precision military parade and John Philip Sousa music, the ever-present soundtrack for the day, then to a total community-attended Little League baseball game in early afternoon. Following that, an afternoon and evening of the party, including, unique to military bases, helicopter tank and jeep rides, along with the common food of Independence Day, hot dogs, burgers, apple pie, coke, and beer, and then always concluding at darkness with an over-the-top fireworks display, usually unmatched by American towns or even American cities. Growing up in this most American of communities, my patriotism was razor sharp. It included an absolute love of country, a very firm belief in the principled superiority of America's values, an absolute faith that America was near perfect, and a very strong sense of duty to my country. Until that is, I was challenged by the disconfirming realities of the American assault on Vietnam. 
This was a, a time when patriotism was equal to supporting silently or, better yet, loudly, the insanity of the meaningless and inhumane war we raged against the Vietnamese people. This was a time when a critical perspective, a disagreeing view of the war made you a commie or a hippie and in fact made you un-American. In the midst of all this upheaval in America, I arrived in Vietnam in February 1968 as an 18-year-old army brat turned soldier motivated by the sense of duty to my community, our perfect nation, and I believed to a responsibility to save the world. That, to me, was the essence of patriotism. I volunteered for duty in Vietnam to protect America from communism, and I was ready to do what was asked, most willing to sacrifice my body and or my mind as a patriot, defending all that I believed in. The realities of Vietnam, however, and ever so quickly exposed it all. First, the false pretense of prote protecting America. Secondly, the moral and legal assumptions that our conduct, conduct was always for our national security and or for the betterment of others. And finally, our blind faith in the noble, just, and humane conduct of our military leaders and soldiers. That is, the entirety of the history I learned about our previous wars was completely challenged and debunked. Stripped of my faith in what I was taught eventually changed my perspective on America and, of course, to a much different notion of what it meant to be patriotic. Returning home in 1969, I attended a sporting event at my old high school. In typical fashion, the game was preceded by the national anthem something I had always been quick to stand for. Having learned to stand tall, straight, and with right hand firmly on my heart, I usually even lingered at its conclusion and took a seat after most others, reflecting, probably in my mind, some sense of superior patriotism. But this time, unexpectedly and completely unplanned, though I was beginning to grow uncomfortable participating in such ceremonies, with people who had little idea and perhaps no concern of the reality going on 8,000 miles away, I could not stand. I had never considered any posture but standing, but I could not. My legs simply would not lift me more than halfway, and then they locked. Sitting back down, I could not sing or even hum the anthem. I was blindsided by this reaction and decided just to sit it out, all the while listening to a growing number of threatening grumblings. Pinko, commie, hippie, hippie, <laughs> which I thought was especially strange given my military haircut and my typical middle-class clothing. Little did they know, nor would it have likely meant anything to them, this hippie, less than a month ago, was in Vietnam, fighting under our flag and watching the destruction of a peasant and dignified society physically, culturally, environmentally, and in human lives lost and maimed. There I sat, my date and I increasingly worried for our own safety. Bewildered but in survival mode, we stood up tall and left. I've never put myself in that situation again, 
I avoid events featuring the anthem or arriving late on purpose. Over the years, I was able to stand at least, hands clasped behind my back, but never singing a word. Today, I'm much more likely to take a knee in the proper situation. That experience and the gradual recollection of my discouraged and my disjointed thoughts and emotions, all scrambled in Vietnam, led directly to evaluating my feelings and thoughts in search of a new self-identification of patriotism. In search of my obligation as a citizen in America, and particularly my personal responsibilities as a veteran. During the time between my service and beginning college, I hibernated in my parents' attic on Fort Knox in Kentucky, reading books and listening to music. Another song, ironically an unusual version of the national anthem, contributed to breaking me out of my delusion. This time, a version played by Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock in the summer of 1969. Hendrix's version of the anthem split the country even further. Was this his right to play it as he feels? Was it treason? Should he be punished in some way? How can we punish him? How can we control how the anthem is interpreted by various people? Anytime I wanted to irritate my father, still serving as an army officer, I played Hendrick's distorted version of the anthem, sparking a lot of contentious disagreement between us. My contention was that it was Hendrick's right to interpret the anthem any way he chose. My father's contention reflected what most adults believed at the time, that the anthem is too sacred to be interpreted by any way, in, by anyone in any way. It demands a respectful playing, like we learned in school, he maintained, as he argued for charging Hendrix with treason or sedition, or at the very least, disturbing the peace. I found his playing, Hendrix's playing, uncomfortably jarring, but interesting, especially because Hendrix's version more accurately reflected the distorted history we were being taught as well as the violence and chaos of bombs bursting in air. Whatever you may think of how the anthem should or should not be played, this Woodstock moment certainly led to today when everyone has a right virtually to interpret the anthem as they choose, and mostly without debate over proper tone or tune. The debate over proper interpretation of the anthem has now shifted to how we, the people, react to it when, it when it's played. Raised fist, slouchy posture, expressive facial gestures, sitting it out, taking a knee, ill-placed hands, all play out on the battlefield of patriotism. And now, 50 years later, my discomfort is even more heightened. The flag still raises mixed feelings and beliefs, like all things complicated, generating conflict between feelings and thoughts, emotion and knowledge. And now, in the most horrific use of the flag anyone could have imagined, the use of the flag as a weapon in the violent attack on our democratic process, our representative institutions, and those assigned to protect them. More and more video of January 6th is being released showing the brutality with which the seditionists used our flag to attack enforcement, protecting the Capitol, and most importantly, our democratic peaceful transfer of power. 
The flag doesn't belong to anyone and should not be re relinquished to a particular political ideology. As complicated a relationship I have with the flag, those on the left side of the political spectrum cannot, cannot allow it to be appropriated and quote unquote owned by extreme nationalists. After my service, devoid of any patriotic identity, holding no faith in anything I'd previously learned and believing that patriotism had been used to delude me and most of the country as a way to continue a war that never had a chance of being won. I began a journey of reconstructing a personal identity as a citizen in a democratic society and new standards of patriotism. That became my first priority as I reintegrated into society, registered to vote, and assumed the responsibility of citizenship, and it also became central to my education, both formal and informal. In that process, in addition to reading a lot of history, I leaned heavily on the cultural work around me. Blossoming from superficial issues of the 50s and early 60s to a critical perspective in lyrics and music, folk, soul, blues, rock and roll, and even eventually country artists from all genres began taking on the gap between what we as America think of ourselves and the way we actually act in both our domestic policies around civil rights and our foreign policies as exposed in Vietnam. My taste gravitated to, first and foremost, this new genre of music, protest songs of the 60s. Dylan, Marvin Gaye, Phil Oaks, The Doors, The Animals, many of these songs I was exposed to during my tour in Vietnam. As anti-war attitudes grew at home and among the troops who were coming in, bringing cassette tapes with them from the United States, much of which involved anti-war music, or in some cases, songs with no anti-war intent as they were written, but nonetheless interpreted as anti-war by soldiers. And I found important learning lessons from literature, like Catch-22 or Slaughterhouse-5, as well as rereads of All is Quiet on the Western Front, which rang more true than it had in high school. And incidentally, a rereading of the Bible for lessons on war and peace. Increasingly, films began to address these gaps in our thinking and our willful ignorance of the reality in front of us, and our preference to cling to old beliefs, even as they prevented us from correcting ourselves as a nation and finding reason to find our way back to the principles we cherish. The film Coming Home about anti-war Vietnam veterans, and the film Born on the Fourth of July, which was the book's author's story on film, and a very familiar story for veterans who were equally disillusioned nearly destroyed by their loss of belief and finding comfort in self-destructive behavior. Unfortunately, this was a very common experience for Vietnam vets and still today among our Afghanistan and Iraq vets. I also greatly benefited from a reading of Vietnamese history, which I and apparently no one in command understood anything about, and underscoring the negligence in not knowing your enemy and the very danger to our own soldiers by disrespecting the enemy. And I benefited the most from a rereading of our own American history, this time with eyes wide open 
and focus not on school books, which sanitized out the negative aspects of our own history, but in deeper and more honest histories, both from America and worldwide writers. And especially I benefited from the writings of our founding fathers and particularly on what they had to say about patriotism. You are listening to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour, Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville, Kentucky. Part 3, Patriotism. What is it? And what it is not. Patriotism eventually became for me a critical and questioning attitude toward the official politically and socially created and marketed notion of patriotism the very version I had rejected. Instead of blind pride and loyalty, I came to believe patriotism involved a sense of responsibility to the basic principles upon which this wonderful country was was built. Those same principles which I would forevermore return to as a standard to judge other forms of patriotic thinking and acting, which I understood only too tragically were obscuring those very principles. All right, all of that said, I would not presume to tell you, any of you, what patriotism is, or how you should define it, or how you should or shouldn't demonstrate it. That's for each of you to decide. I am saying that a self-reflective understanding of your own and other various notions of patriotism has to be the first step toward first principles and closing the gap between our ideals and what we actually do in practice. That said, I do hope my military experience and the knowledge I've gained over five decades of reading, writing, and teaching about foreign policy, American government, the American war in Vietnam, and political thinking and ideologies entitles me to, at least, share with you my thoughts of what patriotism is not. Politically, this is the democratic way forward, not to prescribe what people should do to be patriotic that would be authoritarian. But to chip away at what we can agree patriotism is not. Eliminating what it is not makes finding what it is far more insightful. Patriotism is not merely symbolic, waving the flag to self-define yourself or to feel patriotic or to demonstrate to others. But in doing that, confusing symbolic behavior with the civic responsibility inherent in patriotism as envisioned by our founding fathers. In the 60s, the debate was taken to the streets. Protesters wearing flags on tattered jeans, trampling on and burning flags in the streets was their own symbolic use of the flag. After the 60s, the flag was increasingly co-opted by commercial interests who came to understand they could sell myriad products by manipulating the flag for profit and thereby reaffirming an uncritical view of history. Frankly, using it for commercial reasons is far more offensive to me than using it as a political statement. The one-upsmanship of size and quantity of flags and marketing has nothing to do with our political principles, just our economic ones, to exploit anything for profit. And now, today, today's flag, today flags are too often used to prove one's patriotism in that our reactions to the anthem is seen as proof of patriotism or lack of patriotism. Another misuse of the flag is its use in selling sports in America and a nationalism built largely on power and violence. 
While taking a principled knee or raising a fist or ignoring the flag is hated by many, and it is apparent many of those who use flags intentionally in the violent assault on our democratic institutions on January 6th, maintaining they were the true patriots and in opening up what may become the most volatile battle over patriotism and flag in our history. Patriotism is just not easy. But patriotism is also not merely an emotional impulse or reaction. It requires analysis and critical thinking, not blind, uninformed emotionalism. Patriotism cannot be purchased or displayed with things. Patriotism is not a cliché. My country right or wrong. America, love it or leave it. That's frankly jingoism, the form of extreme and fanatical patriotism posing as real patriotism. Think about those cliches. Right or wrong? Really? Is that what we should teach, even when it destroys needlessly? Love it or leave it? Really? Even if it's wrong, even if we're wrong, we accept our faults and our failings, our criminality even, and don't try to correct that? Don't try to steer us back towards our principles? You must leave? Really? In a democratic society? Perhaps we also need to teach a great deal more about democracy and what it is, how it can be disguised with political ignorance. We need a version of democracy to empower people to be informed and to act to protect our democracy, which is currently under its greatest threat since the Civil War. Over these years, protests against the war or injustices at home the disenfranchisement of people of color, of women, of homosexuals. These were confronted by many bumper sticker patriotic mentalities, right or wrong, love it as it is, or leave. Certainly not the intention of the founding fathers. Patriotism is not automatically shouting or insisting, we're number one, we're number one, without knowing what we are number one in. Checking the list by simply Googling reveals many number one positions we hold but should not. Death by violence, weapons production, weapons sales, general violence, poverty, low health care, poor education, and the list goes on. And in the categories we should want high rankings like education, health, environment, even happiness, we rank embarrassingly low compared to other developed democracies and even some developing countries with far less resources than ours and in some cases with no democratic traditions. No matter how much it is said, how much it is repeated, how much we brand ourselves in ways we want, we might believe it, but it simply doesn't make it true. And believing it's true inevitably undercuts honest thinking and any possible effort to improve if we're already number one. A patriot is not, Mark Duane believed, the person who can holler the loudest without knowing what he is hollering about. Adlai Stevenson, former governor of Illinois, internationally respected diplomat, America's ambassador to the United Nations, observed that Quote, patriotism is not a short and frenzied outburst of virtuousness, which in the words of Oscar Wilde would make patriotism the virtue of the vicious. Nor is patriotism a chant, 
USA, USA, USA. It may work as a sports cheer. <clears throat> I'm not too sure, but not patriotism, and I am sure. If sports competition, however, would supplant war and violence, well, that chant would be more patriotic. Nor is patriotism blind loyalty to your country's foreign policies and certainly not unquestioningly obedience, especially to orders which are illegal or immoral or inhumane or ineffective, whether coming from your government, government or that lieutenant standing right in front of you. In another writing, Mark Twain intoned, patriotism is always loving your country, but only your government when it deserves it. Nor does patriotism involve or demand sublimating your empathy, eliminating your ability to feel for other people or other countries, especially when the cause is unjust. It cannot simply be simply blindly supporting your country even in the unraveling of its finest principles and values and the senseless killing of our own and others. Voltaire speaks to this, the philosopher. It is lamentable that to be a good patriot, one must become the enemy of the rest of mankind. And no, patriotism is not hot dogs, apple pie, parades, silly hats, clothes, beer, or partying. It is reason to celebrate but it should also be a time for reflection and correction around the 4th of July. So what is patriotism? I'll finish up with some relevant quotes by a variety of very thoughtful people which point to some valuable aspects of patriotism, bad and good. American novelist, poet, and activist Marge Piercy wrote, I find patriotism not only a refuge of scoundrels, but of idiots and those who like to buy their thinking ready-made each morning in the vacuous newspapers. To update or quote, you would have to add the vacuous news shows. Every decade or so, she wrote, governments create wars and whip up a frenzy so that we will not notice the shortcomings of our own side and will not question the assumption of our society and demand more rational institutions and laws. Baha Yulah was a Persian religious leader, one of the founders of the Baha'i faith, and which advocates, and he said, it is not for him to pride himself who liveth, loveth his own country, but rather for him who loveth the whole world. The earth is but one country, and mankind its citizens. Haile Selassie, who is emperor of Ethiopia, said that throughout history it has been the inaction of those who could have acted, the indifference of those who should have known better, the silence of the voice of justice when it mattered most that have made it possible for evil to triumph. Aldous Huxley, an English writer and philosopher who wrote nearly 50 books, cautioned that, quote, one of the great attractions of patriotism is that it fulfills our, our worst wishes. In the person of our nation, we are able vicariously to bully and cheat. Bully and cheat, what's more, with a feeling that we are profoundly esteemed statesmen. Okay, part five, 
and the big question, where do we go from here? I'll conclude these quotes by saying, patriotism is not merely an emotion, but an intellectual construct which carries this responsibility as a citizen to be informed and active in holding our country to the principles we advocate. These are very complex and pivotal, pivotal times requiring citizens to inform themselves of the pressing issues of the day. And in order to do that, we all need to reflect on how we view the world. And as important as any other consideration is how we as citizens view ourselves and our relationship to and responsibility, responsibility for our country's future which necessarily involves how we view what patriotism is. That reflection can best begin with consideration of what patriotism is not. Other than that, I'll defer to some of our country's greatest thinkers to suggest a basic outline, a starting point, at least, of an understanding of patriotism in a democracy. Our founding fathers, Jefferson, Madison, and many others, insisted that our that informed, intelligent, and critical questioning of government to keep our country from drifting away from basic principles is the basis for democracy and the highest form of patriotism. You've been listening to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour, Forward Radio 106.5 FM, Louisville, Kentucky. Thank you for listening. Please look at the archives for other Veterans for Peace programs on issues and topics of critical importance in these dangerous times. We will conclude our hour with a song, which I play always around the 4th of July, a reminder of what the real cost of our wars are, and a reminder that patriotism is the tool we hold to direct ourselves, to inform choices, to avoid paying these tragic costs by holding our country responsible and keeping our principles central to our military efforts. I'm going to read the lyrics and then leave you with the beautiful refrain uh, of a song by David Crosby and Graham Nash of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Sometimes Young. And in this version, accompanied by David Gilmore, the sublime, incredible guitarist from Pink Floyd. Daylight again, following me to bed. I think about a hundred years ago, how my father's bled. I think I see a valley covered with bones and blue. All the brave soldiers that cannot get older been asking after you. Hear the past a-calling from Armageddon's side. When everyone's talking and no one is listening, how can we decide? Do we find the cost of freedom buried in the ground? Mother Earth will swallow you, lay your body down. You have been listening to Veterans for Peace Radio Hour here on Forward Radio, WFMP LP, 106.5 FM, Louisville, Kentucky. We have enjoyed our time with you today and look forward to having you back sometime soon. Please join us on the path to peace and nonviolence. We can imagine a world without war, and no matter what the journey is, it will always begin with the first step. For more information, please go to veteransforpeace168.org or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening. <music>